Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Rambling Sesh. Today we will be continuing on reading Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Stephen Gamel and Alvin Schwartz. We will be reading Wonderful Sausage. One dark, rainy Saturday afternoon, a fat and jolly butcher named Samuel Blunt had an argument over money with his wife, Elios. Blunt lost his temper and killed Elios. Then he ground her up into sausage meat and buried her bones under a big flat rock in the backyard. To keep the murder a secret, he told everyone that she had moved away. Blunt mixed his new sausage meat with pork, then seasoned it with salt and pepper, added some sage and thyme and a bit of garlic. To give it a special flavor, he smoked it in his smokehouse for a while. He called it Blunt's Special Sausage. There was such a demand for this new sausage that Blunt bought the best hogs he could find and started raising his own pork. He also kept a sharp lookout for humans who might make a tasty sausage meat. One day, a nice, plump school teacher came into the shop. Blunt grabbed her and ground her up. Another time, Blunt's dentist came by. He was a little round man and into the grinder he went. Then one by one, the children at the neighborhood began to disappear, and so did their kittens and puppies, but no one ever dreamed that Blunt the Butcher had anything to do with it. Things went on that way for many years. Then one day, Blunt made a big mistake. A fat boy came into the butcher shop. Blunt grabbed him and started to drag him to the sausage grinder. The boy broke loose and ran out of the shop and Blunt chased after him, waving a big butcher's knife. When people saw this, they realized at once what had become of all of the missing children and grown-ups and kittens and puppies. An angry crowd gathered at the butcher shop. No one knows for sure what happened to Blunt that day. Some say he was fed to his hogs. Others say he was fed to his sausage grinder. But he was never seen again, and neither was his wonderful sausage meat. Next, we will be reading The Cat's Paw. Somebody was stealing the meat Jed Smith kept in his smokehouse. Every day a ham, or some bacon, or something else was missing. Finally, Jed decided he had to put a stop to it. One night, he hid in the smokehouse with his rifle and waited for the thief. He didn't have to wait long, for soon a black she-cat slunk in. She was the biggest cat Jed had ever seen. When she jumped up and pulled down a ham hanging from the ceiling, Jed grabbed his rifle and turned on the lights. But instead of running away, the cat jumped at him. He fired and shot off one of her paws. Jed was sure he had heard a woman screaming right after the gun went off. The cat began tearing around the room, spitting and yowling. Then she ran up the chimney and was gone. Jed stared at the cat's paw, only it wasn't a cat's paw anymore. A woman's foot laid wriggling on the floor, all shut up and bloody. So it's a witch that's been doing this, he told himself. Just then, one of Jed's neighbors, a fellow named Burdick, came racing down the road to get a doctor. His wife's foot had been shot in an accident, he told Jed. She's bleeding pretty bad, he said. The doctor got to her barely in time. People who were there when it happened, said that she was spitting and yelling just like a cat. 
Next, we will be reading Oh Susanna. Susanna and Jane shared a small apartment near the university where they were students. When Susanna got back from the library one night, the lights were out and Jane was asleep. Susanna undressed in the dark and quietly got into bed. She had almost fallen asleep when she heard someone humming the tune to a song, Oh Susanna. Jane, she said, please stop humming. I want to get some sleep. Jane didn't answer, but the humming stopped and Susanna fell asleep. She awakened the next morning too early, she decided, was trying to get back to sleep when she heard the humming again. Please go back to sleep, she she told Jane. It's too early to get up. Jane didn't answer, but the humming continued. Susanna became angry. Cut it out, she said. It's not funny. When the humming still did not stop, she lost her temper. She jumped out of bed, pulled the covers off Jane, and screamed. Jane's head was gone. Somebody had cut off her head. I'm having a nightmare, Susanna thought to herself. When I wake up, everything will be alright. Next, we will be reading The Man in the Middle. It was almost midnight. Sally had just gotten on the subway train at 15th Street after visiting her mother. Don't worry, Sally told her. The subway is safe. There is always a policeman on duty. But that night, she didn't see one. Except for her, the subway car was empty. At 42nd Street, three tough-looking men got on. Two of them were holding up a third who looked drunk. His head rolled from side to side, and his legs refused to work. When they got him seated between them, his head came to rest on one of his shoulders. Sally thought he was staring at her. She buried her head in a book and tried not to notice. At 28th Street, one of the men stood up. Take it easy, Jim, he said to the man in the middle as he got off. At 23rd Street, Jim's other friend stood up. You'll be fine, he said, and he got off. Now the only one left in the car was Jim and Sally. Just then, the train went around a sharp curve, and Jim pitched onto the floor and sat at Sally's feet. When she looked down at him, she saw a trickle of blood on the side of his head, just above it a bullet hole. Next, we'll be reading The Cat in the Shopping Bag. Mrs. Briggs was driving to the shopping mall to do some last-minute Christmas shopping when she accidentally ran over a cat. She could not bear to leave the corpse on the road or the other cars to hit and squash, so she stopped wrapped the cat in some tissue paper she had with her and put it in an old shopping bag in the back seat. She would bury it in the backyard when she got home. At the mall, she parked her car and began walking to one of the stores. She had taken only a few steps when, out of the corner of her eye, she saw a woman reaching into the open window of her car and take the shopping bag with the dead cat. Then the woman quickly got into a car nearby and drove away. Miss Briggs ran back to her car and followed the woman. She caught up with her at a diner down the road. She followed her inside and watched the woman slide into a booth and give the waitress her order. As the woman sat sipping her soda, she reached into Mrs. Briggs' shopping bag. Then she bent down and looked inside. A look of horror crossed her face. She screamed and fainted. The waitress called an ambulance. Two attendants carried the woman away on a stretcher but they left the shopping bag behind. Mrs. Bridge picked up the shopping bag and ran after them. 
This is hers, she called. It's her Christmas present. She wouldn't want to lose it. Next, we will be reading The Bed by the Window. The three old men shared a room at the nursing home. The room had only one window, but for them, it was the only link to the real world. Ted, who had been there the longest, had the bed next to the window. When Ted died, the man in the next bed, George, took his place, and the third man, Richard, took George's bed. Despite his illness, George was a cheerful man who had spent his days describing the sights he could see from his bed. Pretty girls, a policeman on a horseback, a traffic jam, a pizza parlor, a fire station, and other scenes of life outside. Richard loved to listen to George, but the more George talked about life outside, the more Richard wanted to see it for himself. Yet he knew that only when George died would he have his chance. He wanted to look out the window so badly that one day he decided to kill George. He is going to die soon anyways, he told himself. What difference would it make? George had a bad heart. If he had a heart attack during the night and the nurse could not get to him right away, he had pills he could take. He kept them in a bottle on top of the cabinet between his bed and Richard's. All Richard had to do was knock the bottle on the door where George could not reach it. A few nights later, George died just as Richard had planned he would and the next morning Richard was moved to the bed by the window. Now he would see for himself all the things outside that George had to describe. After the nurse had left, Richard turned to the window and looked out, but all he could see was blank brick wall. Next, we will be reading The Dead Man's Hand. The students at the school for nurses got along quite well with, the, uh, with one another, except for Alice. The trouble with Alice was that she was perfect. At least that's how it seemed to other students. She was always friendly and always cheerful. Nothing ever upset her. Her school assignments were always on time and always perfect. She didn't even bite her fingernails. Many of the student nurses resented Alice. They would have liked to see her fail at something, become frightened or cry or do something that shows she has a weakness like they did. One night, several students tried to frighten Alice with a practical joke. They borrowed the hand of a corpse they had been studying in the anatomy and tied it to a light cord in her closet. When she tried to turn on the light, she would find herself holding a dead man's hand. That would scare anybody, one of them said. If it doesn't scare her, nothing will. After tying the hand in place, they went to the movies. Then they got back. When they got back, Alice was asleep. But when they didn't see her the next morning, they decided to find out what had happened. There was no sign of Alice in her room, but they soon found her. She was sitting on the floor in her closet, staring at the dead man's hand and mumbling to herself. Alice didn't even look up. The joke had worked, but nobody was laughing. A Ghost in the Mirror This is a scary game that young people sometimes play trying to conjure up a ghost in their bathroom mirror. Many don't really believe that the ghost is going to appear, but they try to raise one anyways, for the fun and for the excitement. Some are willing to settle for any ghost, but others have a particular ghost in mind. 
One of these is a ghost named Mary Worth, who is also known as Mary Jane and Bloody Mary. She is the heroine of an old comic strip, but they say she was actually a witch who was hanged at the infamous witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Another of these ghosts is La Verona, the weeping woman who wanders the streets of cities and towns from Texas to California and throughout Mexico looking for her lost child. Still, another Mary Wells, a young woman who is supposed to have been killed in a car accident in Indianapolis, Indiana, about 1965. Her ghost is one of the vanishing hitchhikers. It is said that asking again and again, she thumbs a ride home in a passenger's car, then vanishes before she gets there. Here is how ghost hunters try to raise a ghost. They find a quiet bathroom, close the door, and turn off the lights. While they stare at their face in the mirror, they repeat the ghost's name, usually 47 times or a 100 times. If any ghost will do, they say any ghost in place of a name. If they do manage to raise one, its face will slowly replace their face in the mirror. Some say a ghost is likely to be angry at being disturbed. If it gets angry enough, they say it will try to shatter the mirror and come right into the room. But a player can always turn on the lights and send the ghost back to where it came from, and when that happens, the game is over. Next, we will be reading The Curse. My dad's friend, Charlie Potter, was a small, nervous man who was always looking around, as if he was in some kind of danger. After he told me the story about his college fraternity, I understood why. The frat doesn't exist anymore, he said. It was banned years ago. He had, an, he had just nine members at the point, and we're taking in two more, Jack Lawton and Aaron Carmer. One night in January... Just about this time of year, the nine of us took them out into the country for their initiation. We took them to an old deserted house where two young men about our age had been murdered recently. Their murderer was still at large. We gave Jack a lighted candle and told them to go up to the third floor. Stay there for an hour, he told them, then come back down. Don't speak. Don't make any noise. If your candle goes out, carry on in the dark. From where we were standing, we could see the light from Jack's candle moving up the stairs to the second floor, then to the third. But when he got to the third floor, his candle went out. We guessed that he had come to a drafty corner, and the wind blew it out. But when the hour went by, he didn't come down. We weren't so sure. We waited another 15 minutes and got more and more nervous. So we sent Aaron Carmer up after him. When Aaron got to the third floor, his candle also went out. We waited 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but there was no sign of either of them. Come on down, we called, but they didn't answer. Finally, we decided to go and get them. Armed with flashlights, we, stared up the, we started up the stairs. It was as quiet and dark as a grave in that house. When we got to the second floor, we called out again there was no answer. When we got to the third floor, we walked into a great big open space like an attic. Jack and Aaron weren't there, but we saw footprints in the dust. These led to a room on the other side of the attic. That room was also empty, but there was fresh blood on the floor 
and the window was wide open. It was about 25 feet to the ground, but there was no ladder or rope in sight that they could have used to get down. We searched the rest of the house and the land around the house and found nothing. We decided that they were playing a trick on us. We figured that in some way they had escaped through the window and were hiding in the woods. The blood on the floor was to throw us off the track. We guessed that they showed up the next day with a lot of stories and a lot of laughs, but they didn't. The next day, we told the dean and the men that had happened, and he reported it to the police. The police didn't find anything either, and after several weeks, the search ended. To this day, no one knows what happened to Jack Lawton or Aaron Carmer. Next, we will be reading The Church. There was a fellow named Larry Berger who wasn't afraid of anybody alive, but anybody who was dead scared the wits out of him. One night, Larry was driving in the country in his old Jeep when he got caught in a bad thunderstorm. The rain was coming down in sheets. Since his Jeep didn't have a top to it, Larry started looking for a place to take shelter. But at the first place he came to, he didn't even slow down. It was an old deserted cabin, probably as dry as a bone inside. But Larry knew for a fact that it had been haunted, and he wasn't going to stay there. A few miles further, he came to an old abandoned church, standing all alone in a field. It hadn't been used in years. All the windows, all the window glass was gone, but it still had a section of the roof intact. So Larry parked his jeep and ran inside. It was as dark as it could be in there. Larry groped around until he found a pew and sat down. It was nice and dry, just as he had thought it would be, and he stretched out his legs and made himself comfortable. Suddenly, there was a big flash of lightning, and Larry saw that he wasn't the only one in that church. There were people sitting in almost every pew, they all had their heads bowed as if they were praying, and they all were dressed in white. These must be the ghosts sitting in the shrouds, Larry thought. They must have come in from the graveyard to get dry. Larry jumped up and ran down the aisle as fast as he could, right smack into one of the ghosts, and the ghost laughed. Next, we will be reading the bad news. Leon and Todd loved baseball. When they were young, they had played on the town's baseball team. Leon had been a pitcher and Todd had been a second base. Now that they were a lot older, they spent their feet, they spent their free time watching baseball games on TV and talking about baseball. Do you think they had baseball in heaven? Leon asked Todd one day. That's a good question, said Todd. The one who gets there first should let the other one know somehow. As it turned out, Todd got into heaven first, and Leon waited patiently to hear from him. One day, Leon found Todd sitting in the living room waiting for him. Leon was very excited to see him. What is it like up there, he asked. And what about baseball? When it comes to baseball, said Todd, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is that we do play baseball in heaven. We have some fine teams. I play second base on my team just like I used to in the old days. That's the good news. What's the bad news? asked Leon. The bad news, said Todd, is that you are scheduled to pitch tomorrow.
Next, we will be reading Cemetery Soup. On her way home from the market, the woman took a shortcut through the cemetery. There, sticking up out of the ground, she saw a big bone. She picked it up and looked over it carefully. This will make a very good soup bone, she said. I think I'll take it home. It's perfect weather for hot soup. When she got home, the first thing she did was start the soup. Into a big soup pot went water, carrots, green bean, corn, barley, onions, potato, and a snitch of beef, some salt and pepper, and the bone. She brought it all to a boil and brought it down to a simmer. Yum, she said, sniffing it and tasting it. I can hardly wait till supper. Suddenly, she heard a small voice. Please give me back my bone. The woman paid no attention. Soon she heard the voice again. May I have my bone, please? The woman was reading the newspaper, and again, she didn't take any notice. In a little while, the voice spoke up once more. It was beginning to sound angry. Give me back my bone. The woman kept on reading the paper. Some people are too impatient, she muttered. Once more the voice spoke. Now it sounded very angry, and it was so loud that the whole house shook. I want my bone back. The woman reached into the pot, grabbed the bone, and threw it out of the window. In a voice just as loud, she shouted, Take it. There was an eerie silence, then the woman heard footsteps scurrying away from the house down the road towards the cemetery, and she got up and served herself some soup. Next we will be reading The Brown Soup. The woman came to the funeral parlor to see her husband's corpse. You did a good job, she said to the undertaker. He looks just the way he always looked, except for one thing. My husband has always worn a brown suit, but you have him dressed in a blue suit. That is no problem, the under said the undertaker. We can easily change it. When she returned later, her husband was wearing a brown suit. Now he looks just the way he always did, she said. I know you went into a lot of trouble. It was no trouble, he said. As it happened, there is a man here who is wearing a brown suit and his widow felt that the blue would be better. He is about your husband's size, so we gave him the blue one and gave your husband the brown one. Even so, she said, changing all that clothing was a big job. Not really, said the undertaker. All we did was exchange their heads. Next we will be reading Thumpity Thump. When we moved to Cincinnati from... Soldier Hare, we rented a house awfully cheap because it was spooked and nobody would live in it, but we didn't care because we didn't take no stock in spooks. We had just gone to bed the first night, dog tired from riding in the wagon all day. We hadn't had time to shut our eyes when we heard a thumpity thump, thumpity thump coming down the attic stairs. I covered my head with the blankets, but I couldn't shut out the sound. Thumpity thump, thumpity thump. I could hear it plain as day. Past the bedroom door, thumpity thump, thumpity thump. And down the stairs, thumpity thump, thumpity thump. And through the kitchen, thumpity thump, thumpity thump. And down the cellar stairs, thumpity thump, thumpity thump.
making the most awful racket you ever heard. It was more than we could stand. So we all followed the sound to see what was going on. When we got down to the cellar stairs, we saw that it was a chair that had made all of that racket. There it was, with one of its legs pointing to a place on the dirt floor. We all stood and gawked till my brother Ike said that he believed that the chair was trying to tell us something about the place it was pointing at. So Ike went and got a shovel and started digging. He didn't have to dig far before his shovel struck something hard. Pretty soon, we could see the edge of a box sticking out. We all hollered for him to hurry up and uncover the rest of it. And the chair, it got so excited, it jumped up and down like it had gone plump crazy. When Ike got to the box uncovered, Pop and the boys pried off the lid and there was the body of a man all smooched with blood. It was plain as the nose on your face that he had been murdered, and the chair wanted folks to know it. Right then and there, we decided to leave. Being strangers, everybody would think that we had murdered him and come here to hide the body. It didn't take us long to fill up the hole and get out of the house. The chair was awfully mad about our leaving, and it went up the cellar stairs, thumpity-thump, thumpity-thump, louder than it had gone down. When it thumpity thumped up the next set of stairs and the next and the next louder still. When it got back into the attic, thumpity thump so loud we thought it would thump all of the plastering down on our heads. Nobody asked us why we moved out so soon, because nobody ever stayed more than one night in that place, and most not that long. But I can tell you we were thankful to get back to Scorner where chairs stay where they're put and don't go rampaging around scaring folks out of their wits, pointing out murders, and goodness knows what. I'm going to stop here, but thank you for listening to the rambling sesh, and I'll have a new episode continuing the story next week.